And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest and longtime friend of the podcast, Kim Stanley Robinson on the Coot Street Podcast. And welcome back, Stan. Uh, how are th- how are things in California? Well, I didn't even want to ask how things are in California, I guess. Oh, my Lord. Well, um, to tell you the truth, it's great to be back with you, Gary and Jonathan. Um, but I am speaking to you from the coast of Maine on Mount Desert Island. And oh. I, I hope to write a I hope to write a little book someday called I Married the Island because this is my wife's uh, family place that her. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, her maternal grandfather built this little cabin on the coast to use a nice Gene Wolf title, and um, uh, it's uh, owned by my wife and her aunt and uncle. And we spend a couple weeks a year out here, but it's been more and more and more as the years have passed, and I hope for more in the future. Uh, and this year with the pandemic, um, Lisa being a scientist and a mm-hmm. meticulous person, as opposed to myself, I must say, um, declared that we shouldn't go to airports or on airplanes, which um, sounded right to me. I couldn't deny it, um, given the circumstances. So we drove across North America wow. um, in, in a five-day covert military operation and um, saw practically nobody because a car is like a, a spaceship, just very slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now we're here. And so I'm out on the East Coast rather than the West Coast. But our sons are at our home taking care of our cats and the smoke in California. We're watching yeah. the we're watching the air quality indexes and the fire maps. And it's it's, you know, very it's very bad. The you um, must have happened. It may not have reached Maine yet, but sometime in the middle of last week, we were getting sunsets here in Chicago affected by the smoke from California. Yes, I think we've I've read about that. I haven't seen anything markedly different. We're right on the Atlantic and right. Um a lot of times the onshore wind at night is coming from the south off the Atlantic at about 20 miles an hour. So, um it's it's almost exactly the opposite of the California situation. We're in a a cool, humid, fresh uh, Atlantic type air, which is very exotic for me, being a Southern Californian, but um, delightful. I'm very envious. I had friends, uh, good friends, who lived for years on had a house on South Southwest Harbor. Uh, oh yes, that's not, we're very close. That's that's the closest town to us, Southwest Harbor, and my lord, um, the whole island. But the quiet side, as we call the Southwest side, is is. Um, well, it's just glorious. It's 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 away from the tourists of Bar Harbor and gather. That's I gather that's the appeal. But yes, exactly. Yeah. Although I like Bar Harbor too, but um, the quiet side is indeed quieter. And Southwest mm-hmm. is very much a a work, uh, harbor filled with lobster boats and the Coast Guard station, and um, it distinguishes itself from Northeast Harbor, which is just across a small bay where which is the yachts and the rich people. So. It's nice to be in Southwest Harbor. Right. It must be begin to feel like the the worst versions of your fiction are coming true, though. I mean, the world seems very strange right now. Yeah, yeah. I I can only agree. Um, I mean, we're we're talking about the Ministry for the Future. It it could get worse. Uh, we're in well, a a new normal that is quite shocking, but um, it could get worse and. 
and that needs to be kept in mind. One of the things that struck me about uh, the Ministry for the Future is, is that it does get worse. I mean, it starts off with, to my mind, the most terrifying scene you've ever written in, in a heat wave in India. Um, and yet, at the you always manage to find some reason for hope. Um, and I just wonder if if we were to classify this according to the popular kind of ways of classifying them, it's both a dystopia and a utopia at the same time. Yes, I I would agree across the board. I I thought of it sometimes as the blackest utopia ever written, mm-hmm. or the 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 best possible future that you could still believe in as happening from the, the place we're at right now. So that was kind of the project. And I, I would I would totally agree with you that the first scene of that book was um, uh, painful to write and to imagine. Um, but I, I, I live in fear that it's all too possible that it will come true. We're right on the edge of it. something like that is going to happen. And, um, I think uh, it's almost inevitable. And so people need to know this and try to um, that big changes have to happen to avoid that. Um, not, I mean, it, I said both at once, it will happen, but the thing is it could be so much worse. So, uh, yeah, so I have both of those um, uh, feelings that uh, we are teetering on the brink of a, a wet bold 35 event that will be devastating. And uh, yet at, at the same time, we could we could avoid um, worse things by acting now. So it needed to be written. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Let me ask where did where did the path to the ministry for the future begin? Where where did you start with it? Um, I I've been working on these issues for a long time, and they always seemed a, a, a step removed. Maybe the Green Earth trilogy, the Washington D.C., the Science in the Capitol. That was as close as I could get. Um, but, um, yeah. to, to writing about the, the real situation now, but I wanted to try again. And, um, I went to uh, Europe in 2017 and I had a, a marvelous trip, um, despite my own illness. Uh, and I, uh, was hosted by the, um, uh, cultural, um, the center for culture in Barcelona. So mm-hmm. it's a mus- it's a museum in Barcelona that had a. They have a year, an annual uh, festival of ideas and literature, and I was invited to that. I was there. I spoke at it. Uh, Timothy Morton was also there, the philosopher and uh, professor down at Rice, who used to be a professor at UC Davis and a, as an, a, an acquaintance and friend of mine. And they had designated him the minister for the future. Huh. And then when they inter- and when they interviewed me, they talked about the minister we need a ministry for the future. And I, I went away from that pondering and I have to say, so the idea came from them and I thought that would be a good thing. And then the Paris agreement is the obvious mechanism mm-hmm. for instituting such a thing. And, and there's also, and a, so that's how I started. And, and there, there's so much stuff in this book and we should make this clear to all of our listeners before we get through that. This is a very important book. This is, I think, important in the way that two science fiction novels have been important. And we'll get into that. And one of the things that makes it important is that there's so much in it, uh, both structurally in terms of what a novel can look like and in terms of the ideas and one of the ideas that I, I find haunting is the legal argument um, of making, um, basically providing legal status to 
future generations and to the animal world. Is there a serious legal argument out there to that effect? Because that's essentially where the Ministry for the Future gets its legal authority, isn't it? Yes, yes, and thank you for that. Um, there is, um, um, there's a great book called Do Trees Have Standing by a Christopher Stone, and it's a mm -hmm. classic of in, environmental ethics, uh, and it wonders about the legal standing of the natural world, and there's a famous case, the Constitution of Ecuador gives legal standing to its forest. And there's arguments that it made that through the centuries, legal standing was uh, first to property owners, to uh, men, that the umbrella of legal standing has been expanding outward through historical time in a progressive way, in a kind of Martin Luther, Luther King Jr. way of uh, mm -hmm. the arc bending towards justice slowly. So you get women, then you get children's rights, then you get some animal rights in the British uh, mm -hmm. laws of 18th century, which is a kind of a reaction to literature itself. And uh, as these expansions have gone on, the notion being that maybe all living creatures deserve legal rights, and, and, but who speaks for them in the courts? Mm -hmm. And this is a, a, a big question in every legal trial when a case is brought in civil court is, do you have standing to bring that case in the first place? So um, it, there are now uh, children's organizations. This is really a crucial thing because the children then speak for the people the children yet to come, a uh, network of organizations devoted to the legal rights of people who don't exist yet, uh, generations to come, and also the natural world, the animals, mm -hmm. the the uh, ecospheres. It's um, emergent and embryonic, but it has a historical trajectory that means that uh, I'm not just making it up, but, but doing the usual science fiction thing of extrapolating from right. the current trend. Yeah. Well, one of the things that uh, I think, well, we could, there, there are three, okay, let me, let me back up and say there are three kinds of things I want to talk about. One are the ideas. Uh, one is the, the way you've structured it, which goes beyond what you've done before. We've talked before when you've been on the podcast about using these, uh, what, not quite cut up techniques, but the sort of thing that Dos Passos did and Brunner did where you interpolate chapters from news, I think they called them newsreels in the Dos Passos trilogy. And, yep. and. Well, you've done that before. You haven't ever done it to this extent. There, are, there are whole chapters that are essentially standalone. There are chapters that are uh, riddles. There are chapters that are uh, dialogues between unnamed interlocutors. There are chapters that are. There's one chapter that's a list. Um, and I, I gave up googling at that point. There's a chapter that lists 200 global uh, efforts from country to country. I don't know if they were real or not, but I found it both overwhelming and oddly encouraging. So I guess from a literary point of view, how did you decide to sort of um, mix all these narrative parts together, uh, some of which are not even traditionally thought of as fiction? Well, I wanted to try to do a global thing. I wanted to uh, stretch the novel to its max to encompass this particular topic. And so the form mm. had to follow the function. And you're right to mention Dos Passos and Brunner. And in 2312, I explicitly modeled right. 2312 on the USA trilogy, uh, as Brunner did with his uh, stand on Zanzibar. Um, it's a great method for doing uh, a global picture rather than a small group of individuals. Although, 
the novel is um, dependent on sticking to a small group of individuals also. So you need to have both. Now, in 2312, I, I um, followed Dos Passos even to the type fonts of his table of contents and the four strands and so on. But in the Ministry for the Future, two things I changed. One, I decided to make no table of contents and no identification as to what type of chapter you might be reading. Mm. So one of the, the games to play with the reader is when they start a new chapter, they don't know what kind of chapter it's going to be, and they get to figure that out. And it isn't deeply mysterious. Within a no. few sentences, you, you know what kind of chapter you're in, and that's part of the game. And then the other thing is just the, um, the attempt, though, the discovery that the eyewitness account uh, is a genre, and it's mm. not like fiction. It's a different genre. So when eyewitnesses are asked to give a, an eyewitness account, it's usually many years later, even decades, they uh, are older, they're making judgments. They don't dramatize the scene the way a novel would dramatize the scene. They summarize, they tell rather than show. So there's a, a reversal of this uh, stupid nostrum of show, don't tell, which I always love. And mm -hmm. in telling, they are slashing forward to what matters, and it's just it's just as dramatic in the end, but it's more compressed and it includes judgments. And when I I started reading collections of eyewitness accounts, there's one of May '68 in France, there's one of uh, Spring of 1945 in Germany, there's mm -hmm. one of um, the ancient worlds, such as we eyewitness accounts as we get, they're a little weird, and so on and so forth. And when I realized that you could. Uh, make up eyewitness accounts to describe a future history. Well, then I had my method and I just uh -huh. ran with it. I'm curious, how important was it to you to find the perspective for the story? Because the, whilst there are all these interpolatory kind of techniques that you've used, there's still two core narratives that build the story. You know, that of Frank May and that of the woman who's running the Ministry for the Future in Zurich. How important was it to put those perspectives in the book and given that it is possibly the most harrowing and personal piece of writing I've read about an, a climate change event to center that story at the beginning in uh -oh. one of the places that we typically overlook I lost the end of your connection Jonathan but I, um, I lost the end of your quick question so I will focus on the beginning okay. and we can uh, okay. pick up that the, the second sure. half um, it's it seemed to me crucial to have um, characters as you normally think of them and have Mary and Frank and their story, I needed to ground or anchor everything else. Mm -hmm. All the other modes, the riddles, the dialogues, the, um, uh, the various little passages from nowhere uh, needed to be grounded by an, uh, what might be a novella or a short novel that you keep coming back to. So no matter how um, diffuse the rest of the information flow is, you still have that central story of characters that you uh, get to know and care about in the usual way, because that's what novels do best. That was what was novel about them in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, uh, w the other thing that uh, helped me with this book was deciding to put it in Zurich, Lisa and I lived in Zurich in 1986 and 1987. We had two uh, 
glorious and all too brief years there. And I never have really gotten much of that into my fiction. So this time I went, I went deep and put the novel in Zurich to give it a, you know, a local habitation and a name, as Shakespeare said, uh, so that all of the international stuff and the flying around the world of the story, it keeps coming back to Zurich, a place that I know and love. And it's that a, was another thing, along with the eyewitness accounts, well, that no, allowed I, me to make it a novel. Well, and, and the other, the other plot, which which I I found myself zeroing in on, is uh, is set in Antarctica, where you've also been. Um, and it's, yes. it's kind of tragic well, scientific Hebrew story in a way. But, well, it was. Um, it, it, thank you. Yes, that was important to me too because I have been there and I was there as recently as December 2016. So it isn't old news. It was a mm -hmm. mind-boggling 11 in December of 2016 to go back. Uh, and the uh, some of the Antarctic glaciologists have been telling me that um, the speed with which the glaciers are sliding into the ocean is caused by water underneath them lubricating their slide and their their gravitational mm -hmm. speed. If you re if you remove that water from beneath them, you could slow them back down, and this would effectively stabilize sea level rise, which would take one giant problem off the table. It was interesting. It was new. The glaciologists who were telling me about it did not want to publish. They wanted me to <laughs> spread the news. So I was happy to do so. It gave it, me a story. It, it sounds like a classic science fiction solution to a problem, that the, uh, which is very hard SF, I guess, in its conception. But the idea is that the weight of the glaciers would create pressure on the water underneath that you'd essentially create geysers, I guess. Um, and and thereby slow down the uh, it, it's it's something that astounding science fiction would have been proud to think of in 1950 if they'd known about the glaciers sliding into the sea back then. It's it's such a classic science fiction yeah, solution to a problem. It is, and um, the cool thing is, I I mean I'm not sure how realistic it is to tell you the truth because I'm an English major and other glaciologists I talked to about it were um, interested, but um, um, non-committal. The, the technology exists because they drill through ice all the time, quite deeply. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, the weight of the glacier would push the water underneath it up a hole about 90% of the height. Uh, not a geyser, which I was hoping for, but rather just um, uh, the laws of physics are such that the, the rise of the water would be 90 feet up the hole and then you would pump it out. Yeah. Um, the, the real... The question, though, that the glaciologists who were not involved with the idea uh, brought up to me when they discussed it is, can we understand the canyons, the rock beds underneath well enough to figure out where to drill? And are there perhaps spaces where entire slopes are tilted into the sea such that um, there is no canyon that you can drain? And in effect, we are doomed to sea level rise. Well, uh, that may be true, but it was uh, it was a story to tell, and it was a new story, and it was actually yeah. scientifically grounded and given given to me by glaciologists. So I, I had to run with it. The other part of my question was to do with the opening section of the novel. What really struck me was. So often when I read climate change disaster novels or disaster novels, they skip over the, the, the incredible price that's paid outside of the 
traditional science fictional Western world. How important was it to play to place this experience at the forefront of the novel and to basically forefront this happening to to brown people as an important thing? Yeah, it's scary. Um, I'm a um, suburban white American male um, from California, so I take the opportunity of the novel to try to imagine the other, and I um, wanted to give it a try. I I felt that it was important to write this scene down as being um, a, an a clear and present danger that we ought to dodge if we can before it happens. Uh, so I want, it was kind of the classic dystopian warning signal. Mm. Um, I don't, I've never been to India except for, you know, 10 hours in the new Delhi airport <laughs> waiting for a flight. Um, but I did spend some time in Kathmandu, which is, and down in the Terai of Nepal, which is really almost like India, except like, for the borderline. Mm-hmm. So, um, I got help from some Indian acquaintances uh, feeling insecure about what I had written, which came out all out of of books and 30-year-old memories of Kathmandu. Uh, And I I shared those chapters, and I I read the Hindu Times daily for months, and uh, they helped me. Um, They said, oh, you've missed this, you've missed that. I've talked to some Mm -hmm. aid workers who have worked uh, for nonprofits in, in India. What is it like? What did you notice? And so I did what the novelist does, and I tried to imagine it out of a partial, um, I mean, I just don't have that personal experience, but I felt like it was worth trying to write it anyway. And I must say, my helpers have been superb the, I, for this I book. To, and I have to admit that I just, I, I, we've been talking to a lot of writers this summer, and I talked to a couple of Indian writers who have not senior novel, but I was describing the opening scene to them and how terrifying I thought it was. And in both cases, uh, they sounded very appreciative that you would open the novel that way, but neither of them uh, were at all surprised that that would happen. And and in both cases, they said, of course, that's going to happen, which made it even more terrifying to me. Yeah, it it's um, there. Are, I mean, what's interesting is the the wet bulb 35 temperature one of the closest approaches to it ever was in Chicago. So mm-hmm. it it isn't it isn't just the Gangetic Plain of North India that is susceptible. Um, all kinds of places that have heat and humidity in combination are uh, in danger. But uh, it does seem like the one of the most likely places will be uh, these places in South Asia. And the tropics in general, right. um, including Venezuela, the U.S. Gulf Coast, um, sub, uh, equatorial Africa, etc. But India has the monsoon. It has the Himalayas to trap the heat and humidity against it in very dangerous ways. So um, I, I, what I felt was... This reminds me that it, in the beginning of Red Mars, I I brought in the the danger of Arab anger of getting John Boone killed, and then I had to spend the rest of the trilogy paying close attention to Arabic culture. Well, mm. in Ministry for the Future, having that initial disaster happen in India, having the children of Kali go out into the world and try to change it out of their 
their anger and their feeling that things needed to change fast, I needed this novel to pay more attention to India than just that first scene. So that was why the year of reading the Hindu Times and other Indian newspapers as being one of the more interesting sources of information, because they're they're like newspapers anywhere. They're trying to present a particular value system. So mm-hmm. I, I I actually present India as kind of a leader in changing the world for the better, which um, is a a kind of way of making sure that I stayed with the trouble, as Donna, Way, Donna Haraway says. Donna Haraway, and I didn't yeah. just use India, the Indian incident as an excuse and turn it into an international novel. India ends up being important to the novel, even though I don't know enough to be very confident about those chapters. But you, you raise an interesting issue when you mention the, the children of Kali, which essentially is what we would, I guess, call an eco-terrorist organization or becomes that. But before that even becomes an issue, uh, India sets up, and this is not giving anything away because it's early in the novel, but India basically decides to try to um, partly deal with global warming by violating international law and um and 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 see and trying to lower the ambient temperature through through its air force, which is a major, must be a multi-billion dollar thing. But you make the point that they do this without permission. They do this in violation of international treaties. And this becomes a sub-theme for me, at least in the book, that as much as there is in the way of legal organized responses to uh, to, to a climate crisis, there's the idea that you have to break the rules. India breaks the rules. There are terrorist organizations. It's not, uh, it becomes suggested early on that uh, the Ministry of the Future itself, which is a legal organization, needs to have uh, a, a black ops uh, uh, portion to it, which raises the question, how much can be done within the framework of law or international law? And how much does really radical activity uh, have to play a role in this? Yeah, well, that's putting your finger right on the hard point. Um, I believe in the rule of law, and I don't believe in comfortable bourgeois people advocating violence elsewhere in the world to make change, because it's other people who suffer the consequences of that. And so as I wrote this book, I was trying to run a fine line where and also do a kind of a science fiction thing of saying these things are going to happen. I'm mm-hmm. not going to judge. The novel isn't even going to judge them. You have to judge. They're going to happen whether you like them or not. Some people will call it resistance. Some people will call it terrorism. Mm-hmm. And how you feel about these depends on which end of the gun you're at. And um, I I can't say I'm comfortable about it. You can see the novels squiggling yeah, yeah. Under, the pre- under, under the pressure. Um, Badim, the, the assistant to Mary, is a crucial character. He's right. half Nepali, half Indian. Uh, he's r- running the black ops wing, the black wing of the Ministry for the Future, which he invented in order to make its work more effective in the world. We never know what exactly he's done or hasn't done. Well, this is a, a tricky game to play, but it's also, as a novel, it allows the reader to kind of co-create it. They can say, well, I think he did this, or I think he did yeah. that. And the the final 
chapter of Badim where he goes back to India and talks to some of the children of Kali and tells them to back off. Well, this is a crucial chapter. And and all of the stuff with Badim and Mary, I think, is crucial as a discussion to be had. And I, I'm not comfortable with any of this. Uh, in some ways... Uh, you know, my wife says if you have a novel describing political violence, it's like an endorsement of political violence. But I say it's going to happen. It's already happening yeah. in the world. And so a realist novel has to at least describe it. And then I don't quite judge it. One of the things that occurred to me about the Ministry of the Future is that however idealistic it is and however uh, well-intentioned Mary and her staff might be, uh, it's still a bureaucracy, and uh, I, I kept flashing back to the uh, Science in the Capital trilogy, which basically uh, dealt with the ineffectiveness, really, of the, or, or the relative powerlessness of the uh, um, National Science Foundation. Uh, and, 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 and to some <clears throat> extent, this becomes a kind of expansion, a global expansion of a lot of the problems that you outlined in that trilogy. Yes, I think that's right. Um, the internationalization is really important, though, because it, we're on one planet, it's a global effort, but we're in a nation-state system, and therefore I, I, I seized on the, the Paris Agreement as a utopian gesture that looks mm -hmm. like it's in, invented out of one of my novels. If, if you had said in 2000 there will be an international agreement that every nation will sign on to to lower carbon emissions, well, it would have been simply a scene out of science fiction. And mm -hmm. yet it was signed in 2015 and it's going forward. Now, it may be the League of Nations. It may end up failing, but it might also be the start of something quite powerful and transformative. So um, it is a bureaucracy or a technocracy. I like that term. Yeah. Um, the technocrats are important and the diplomats are important. And the fact that the Paris Agreement was written as it's written, because it's worth reading the whole document, and then that all 178 nations signed on to it. Um, it's it's a it's one of the few hopeful signs we've had in this century. And as I say, although it could turn into the League of Nations and just get lost in the shuffle, mm -hmm. um, if it went well, it could be the scaffolding for something quite good going forward. And so that's what I wanted to seize on and try to tell that particular story. Thinking about the political violence you mentioned in the novel. How hard is it to maintain faith in process to solve the situations we have? Because what's attractive to me about the uh, part of the novel that relates to you know, the children of Kali and Badim's actions is that it's some form of direct action, whether or not it's legitimate, at least it's, it's action. And it feels, when you look around the world today, getting process to work seems to be the great challenge facing us. Yeah, I... I worry about that, and I feel that that's a a bit of um, um, it's the it's the emotional response of I want to do something. But I yeah. I think the the crucial story in the Ministry for the Future is the central banks agreeing to institute a carbon coin, and this is another science fiction thing that it would be an astounding if they if they paid attention to economics and. Um, it's it's not my idea. It's an idea that is in the uh, environmental economics world and, and um, a kind of diffuse um, political economy um, discussion. Um, but I really and truly think that 
um, since we live in neoliberal capitalism and saving the world is not profitable, we are doomed. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, a post-capitalist economy that actually creates money from scratch, like quantitative easing in 2008, and after the pandemic, I have to say, this quantitative easing has to be um, uh, continued and directed to environmental work, to uh, car decarbonization work. And so that gets into modern monetary theory and Keynesianism. And the economics in the novel, the finance, was um, for me, crucial, and uh, of course, as usual, a pain in the ass to understand and, and to write about. But Mary is the the character who's struggling to understand, like I would be, and then she has experts explaining it to her, like I had experts explaining it to me. So it's all relative and transparent, the methodology, but the actual substance of this, just recently, um, Lawrence Sumner's, who I think was Treasury Secretary for Clinton, if I'm not mistaken, and a kind of a horrific president of Harvard, if I'm not mistaken. In any case, his think tank, and he, he was lead author on a paper uh, essentially advocating this very plan. So um, we're going to have to create money from scratch, and the first spending of it is not to give it to the banks to do their usual stupid spending and lending, but to uh, d target it for uh, WPA-type um, Green New Deal-type projects, and after that it flows through the economy in the normal way. So um, this was all fascinating to me, and, and by far the most utopian element is the idea that capitalism could shift into post-capitalism by way of the central banks deciding that in order to do their one function, which is to stabilize money and maybe employment levels, to do their job, they have to save the world, which strikes me as hilarious as well as apt. So Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's intriguing because you make these things sound feasible and attractive. The whole carbon coin thing is uh, explained. Actually, I, I think one of your chapters is narrated by a blockchain, um, which is just yeah, one of the yeah. bizarre ideas. I've, but I have to admit, I understood blockchain better after that chapter. But there's another there's another bit in it, uh, which I think Vadim is involved in, where uh, basically people reclaim the Internet by, by choosing, uh, essentially creating websites that are alternatives to Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and that sort of thing, where people can choose to sell their own information and receive money for it. In other words, yes. those of us who are using Facebook can collect our own money instead of the corporation collecting it. That just sounds yes. great. And I, I, it's altogether possible. These are actually just changes in our habits rather than our technologies. There's nothing stopping us from doing all those things. And um, since we are, our information is financially valuable to the big five, um, if you simply decided to shift over to open source and then share the income amongst people for the information that they're giving through their lives on the internet. Um, this is, again, it's not my idea. It's something that I run into in the kind of um, radical political discussions that I read obsessively. And um, it, it, it strikes me that solutions are out there, that it's somewhat the case that we sleepwalk through our existences without believing that big changes could happen, even when big changes are blasting us from uh, left to right all the time. So um, uh, telling 
I've come across this phrase, the, the discursive battle, that one of the biggest uh, fields of conflict is the discursive battle, simply the battle of ideas, of, of, of ideologies. And in that discursive battle, if you can tell the better story, then you can convince people to act differently. So, I mean, it hasn't actually worked so far. <laughs> so um, I'm not uh, convinced that I'm on to um, a method. And of course, I'm just as interested in writing a, a good novel as I am in uh, making political change, to tell you the truth. Mm. I mean, really, if I had to make a choice between writing a good novel and making a political change, I'd choose to write a good novel. But I think <laughs> the two are closely are closely related. So I, I don't have to make that choice. The two are, are parts of the same project, at least for me. So I, I just think it's worth trying these stories out to see if they can um, be a, a, an intervention in the discursive battle. And and in one of the things that does uh, strike me about that that whole business about uh, the the open source social media um, is an idea that could have been a short story or a novella by itself, and there, which goes back to the complex structure of the novel. There are stories within stories within stories, stories that lead off in different directions. Uh, narrators were introduced to and were left at the end of a chapter wondering what happened to that character, what happened to those characters. So it's. Uh, uh, I was, I was going to say the, the, the novel doesn't really have what Clute calls a slingshot ending, but it has lots of slingshot endings. It has whole chapters that lead off into um, intriguing territory, which you don't need to explore in the novel, but which we can't stop thinking about once we've read that. Well, that's good. And thank you for that, Gary. Especially when you mentioned the slingshot ending, um, Clute has um, generously and beautifully in his usual manner, he picked that phrase up from me. Oh, really? And I, yes. And I, he says so in his entry in the science fiction and encyclopedia. He makes it clear in the very first sentences, the slingshot ending is a phrase that Kim Stanley Robinson uses to describe the end of many Gene Wolfe novels. Uh -huh, yes. And um, it, it's Gene Wolfe who does this all the time. And it is a most stunning slingshot ending. Uh -huh. And I had shared this phrase with Wolfe himself. I told him my theory. Um, it came from his short story, Silhouette. And, and uh, I said that I thought that the book of the new sun had ended with a most spectacular uh, slingshot ending. And I postulated that Hartwell had encouraged him to write the earth of the new sun because he, Hartwell could not stand a, a slingshot <laughs> ending, ending such a massive um, quartet as the book of the new sun. And Wolf agreed with me and he laughed and he said, but I got the best of it because of the Earth of the New Sun has an even bigger slingshot <laughs> ending. <laughs> so I feel that the concept was uh, clarified for Wolf, even though I think he invented it almost as a technique. Although Clute sees it everywhere, like in Frankenstein and many oh, places. Yeah. Um, he's, he's a better historian of literature than I am. And, uh, and yet, I think for Wolf, the phrase clarified it, and I believe that interlibrary loan is deliberately ending with perhaps what he knew to be his final novel, and yeah. so those, that final page is quite beautiful as well as sad, but he he knows this is the last page of the last novel he's going to finish. And so he ends with a spectacular um, slingshot ending in which reality itself is shaken to its foundations, etc. 
That's true. I have to go back and look at that again, but I think you're absolutely right. And I think he was, uh, to some extent, making his bow to posterity in that in, in that last inning because there was a there's a constant doubling throughout that in the novel before it of versions of the author and author the author watching himself at an earlier age being murdered and that sort of thing. So there's a kind of obsessiveness. And I remember talking to him uh, while he was working on uh, Interlibrary Loan, and we don't need to d- completely go off track here and talk about Gene Wolfe. But one of the things well, that always impressed me... We should. Oh, yeah. But he, he is, as far as I can tell, somebody who literally wrote one thing at a time. Uh, uh, the the mm-hmm. reason we know that the Interlibrary Loan was his last book was because he wasn't working on a bunch of... There, there wasn't unfinished stuff out there. He knew exactly what he was doing every step of the way, and he, you're absolutely right. He knew that was going to be his last novel. Yeah, and I think he, um, uh, in inventing the story of a of a narrator who is essentially a living book, like an audio book on the right. shelf, he's in a perfect position to speak for himself posthumously or pre-posthumously. Yes. It's a great device, and because he loved the pulps of the '30s and so much that this writer, being a writer of the pulps and and having a narrative style in the style of a simplistic 1930s. Uh, person, it's all um, Wolf playing more games with us and having fun as well as finding the right way to talk about what he wanted to talk about. I think those last two books are are amongst the best of his last. I, I feel that every book since The Wizard Knight is weak uh, compared to his main line, mm-hmm. but with, occasion, with occasional really interesting books or moments, but they're not at the same level whatsoever, but these last two books, he found a way in which to uh, enjoy tapping away as he was um, fading off into non-existence. And they're, they're um, especially a borrowed man, the, the sudden visit to an entirely different world. I mean, they have that Wolfian strangeness and power um, that I think make for a good finish for him. I think um, you're right. I, I myself, when I got invited to go to University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and I contacted Gene and I made, uh, he was in Peoria taking care of Rosemary at that time. He had moved down there. So I drove from Champaign-Urbana to Peoria and I had breakfast and then lunch with Gene. And then I drove up to Chicago and flew home. This was in 2013. And it was a most beautiful visit. Um, He had been my teacher at Clarion. We had always stayed in touch. And um, there he was with doing um, faithfully taking care of Rosemary, which, of course, was what he most wanted in the world to be doing. But uh, it was already a little preposterous. And yeah, uh, it, it was a beautiful visit. And I'm so glad that I did it because uh, Gene means a lot to me. And I do think he is our, our great um, the one of the greatest writers of the 20th century without without a doubt and because I knew him and because he was so funny and so strange and so beautiful um, it, it just it, it's it will always remain with me as a really important memory I well as, as I say we could go on and on and talk about Gene I think you're absolutely right I'm uh, hoping that uh, his thing his, his, his stories and novels will stay in print but you mentioned also uh, the fact that he knew that a borrowed man and interlibrary loan were valedictory, and that he was, uh, you know, uh, approaching the end of his career. I think he'd been planning this for years. On the other hand, uh, you're 
still comparatively a, a, a young writer. You have now a major novel that a lot of people would think Ministry of the Future is about as far as you can go in the direction you've been going since the three Californias. And when we were chatting earlier, as a matter of fact, uh, in one of these little 10-minute podcasts, you, you said you might not be doing another novel for a while. Is that still your thinking? Yeah, it is. And it is about as far as I can go. I'm, I'm tapped out. Um, I, I have um, an ongoing relationship with my editor at Orbit, Tim Holman. And I want to say that I, ho- I owe him an immense amount for being so supportive. Uh, and as I would, uh, the way I would say it is he gave me my 60s the way that uh, Damon Knight gave me my 20s. And <laughs> the thing is that our artists don't usually, uh, they don't always get their 60s um, as artists. Uh, things happen. That's and true. Um, there is a, uh, the, the arc, the life, an artistic lifetime is very often shorter than a biological lifetime. And you end up in semi-retirement or whatnot. Uh, and Tim Holman s- saved me from that by uh, s- uh, scaffolding uh, a, a stupendous run for me in terms of energy and encouragement from him, starting with 2312. And um, I, I have to say, I think I geared up to it with Galileo's Dream right before that. But from 2312 mm-hmm. through the ministry, that's what I call the Orbit Six. And uh, it's been a fabulous run in terms of how it's felt for me anyway. So, but now I, uh, well, I'm writing a personal book, a a nonfiction about hiking in the Sierra Nevada. That's very absorbing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't, I won't stop writing. There's no chance of that. Uh, I have ideas, but not very many. One idea I have has to be written as a play and I know nothing about that. So (laughs) I'll, I'll fumble around. But I promised uh, Tim Holman that I'll get back to him. And we have this plan of doing one book at a time and not going in sequences of three. Uh, And I personally am thinking about, well, what does it mean, late style? Um, It's it's, um, a kind of a famous thing for writers as they get older to shift into a late style. And I'm there. I I don't want to do... Um, 600 page novels that try to encompass everything anymore. I don't think I could do it after the ministry for the future. Uh, I have to say, if an idea hits me, they'll follow it. But my notion now is thinking about Penelope Fitzgerald, um, these novels of hers, she wrote in her seventies and eighties, they're about 120 pages long. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about the uh, science fiction of the 1950s. And Gary, I want to give you um, again, a tremendous uh, thanks uh, for your uh, fantastic work for library of America. The, 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 those collections are fantastic. Um, uh, Novels of the 1950s, science fiction of the 1950s, science fiction of the 1960s. And God, I hope you continue. Um, Why not? It's it's good in the 70s too. Yeah. Um, But, and that's a long time ago now. But what I'm thinking is... Yeah, 1970 is 50 years ago now. Right. And great novels were popping out like like popcorn out of a movie popcorn cooker. It was an extraordinary time. And what I'm saying is that a lot of those novels were 70,000 words long. And so this is what I am conceiving of, is that I will 
move into a, a slightly slower, more contemplative and shorter mode. <laughs> a little compression. That's, that's a classic uh, observation people make about, uh, you're right, about a writer's in late stage career. I mean, Faulkner writes a fable and uh, Hemingway writes The Old Man and then Shakespeare writes The Winter's Tale. Uh, the idea yeah. that somehow things yeah. become more distilled, more purified, you're getting kind of a uh, a, a cognac instead of wine out of the same material. Um, although yeah. I have to say one thing yeah. about the Library of America is that as in uh, the problem with the 70s, I really appreciated the fact that people back in the 50s and 60s wrote novels that were short enough that you could get eight or nine of them into two volumes. And when people start writing 200,000 word novels... Yeah, which I which I have done. Although I, uh, my contract demanded one hundred and seventy five thousand words, so it was not entirely my fault, but it was my inclination. Um, and w I think that uh, Tim Holman always explained that was just for the lawyers, so that I wouldn't turn in a novella and claim that I had fulfilled my contract, which would not have happened. But in any case, I think you're right, and I want to see. Many of these short novels do everything that you want out of a novel, and so mm -hmm. there must be some power. And I tell you, the experience with the eyewitness accounts in Ministry for the Future was so um, profound. I realized that um, there's something there, there's a style there that allows me to do things that I've never done before. So I don't know what I'll, uh, how I'll put that to use, but I do know well, that. The second half of 2019 was one of the most amazing uh, feeling periods of writing I've ever had because of those eyewitness accounts that were coming to me sometimes uh, two a day. It was, wow. it was really quite amazing. Let me ask this, given what you've just said, does science fiction still feel like an apt tool for the kind of things you want to do? I, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I have to give um, many thanks to you, too, as being supporters of what back in the 70s people were calling literary science fiction, which is yeah. a, a title I abhor because it <laughs> implies it implies that there was something that was not literary. It was a snobbish thing. It was stupid. But um, let's just say good science fiction, that that's what you guys have been promoting. And Jonathan, with your editing and commissioning and Gary, with your writing and your editing now, um, it's always been about, it's the same thing Damon Knight said, that there's no reason why science fiction can't be the best literature around, given the world that we live in, which is kind mm. of a big science fiction novel anyway. So I, I, I have a some what you might call embryonic ideas. I, I, I am kind of tapped out, but Tim Holman has promised me to help. I said, I'm out of ideas. He said, oh, I can help you with that. <laughs> it just made me laugh. <laughs> well, I thought, well, if, if you can, then go ahead. I, I'm up for anything. I, I write to suggestion now. I, I write to commission. I had a I had a magazine editor in Germany ask me for a short story. It was only supposed to be, I, I guess, a thousand words. I said, what the heck? I, I wrote a thousand word short story. I, I read a biography of Daniel Defoe and I realized that um, there is um, an opportunity to relax and to just uh, let things fly and see what happens. And I think that's where I'm at now. But it will be science fiction. Well, let me put in a vote for, uh, for, for seeing some more short fiction from you, because I'm thinking, uh, when I think back over the last few decades, 
of stories. There, there are stories of yours that keep popping into mind from 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 Venice Drowned, which is like happening now, uh, to uh, uh-huh. to the Lucky Strike, which pops up again in lots of anthologies, to actually one of my favorite stories, and I can't remember the exact title, but it's The Tempanist of the Berlin Philharmonic, 1942. Uh-huh. Am I uh-huh. close to that? That's it, yeah. yeah. Okay, and that just struck That's me the as most... an astonishing story about about the power, about what music can do. Well, that was Jonathan. Jonathan uh, caused that story to come to be. Um, <laughs> when he was doing the best of of my short stories for Nightshade, he said, we need a new story. And I had nothing. And I mean nothing. And he said, but no, a new story is crucial here. So uh, put your thinking cap on. And I thought and I thought and, I, and nothing was coming to me. And I was I went out for a run with uh, Beethoven's Ninth and my headset to listen to as I ran. And and I was thinking to myself, well, what would Karen Fowler do in this situation? Because she's she's brilliant at finding short stories. Um, and when I was listening to the first movement of Beethoven's Ninth, and I, I've told this story before, I the timpani was imitating the bombers over Berlin. I swear to God, I heard it as clear as could be. And so then I thought, well, what's going on with that? I went home immediately. I, I thought, were there bombers over Berlin in 1942? I mean, had they gotten that far by then? And in fact, Hamburg had been uh, devastated, uh, firebombed and destroyed just a couple months before that concert, et cetera, et cetera. So the story came to me because Jonathan asked for it. And this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm yeah. going to be res- responsive to requests and short fiction what occurs to me now is that these eyewitness accounts, they're always short fiction by necessity, by, by generic um, uh, mandatory. There is not a long eyewitness account. That gets back into the world of the novel. But right. I'm thinking about first-person short stories. And even here out in Maine, I've been thinking about these little pieces of blue styrofoam um, fragments that I'm finding on my beach everywhere, the kind of micro trash. Um, yeah. Uh, I th- I don't think I'm going to have too much trouble coming up with things to <laughs> stories. To <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, the, most, the challenge of the first person narratives in some ways must be finding a narrative arc in. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, um, the bulk of my career has been in third person, but I began by writing lots of stories and trying to be the other. And so I'm very intrigued by this. This is what eyewitness accounts are. I did this, I did that, my Lord. It's so audacious. And, um, and of course, it's even controversial now. Um, how can you be so appropriative of other people's cultural experience and so on and so forth? Well, that's true. Um, but what else is fiction but an attempt to imagine the other? And isn't imagining the other's position and feelings crucially important to being human? So I will always defend fiction in the same way that I always defend science fiction, philosophically and, and emotionally, as a kind of uh, religion, you may, a way of making meaning out of the world. I, I'm I'm completely committed to it. Well, so I- uh, first Taking on voices, I'm interested. One of the things I used to teach uh, quite a bit was uh, Holocaust literature, and I got involved with a, a number of survivors because a lot of them live in Skokie, north of Chicago, and ended up reading a lot of first-person accounts uh, because there was a debate which is still going on among survi- among what survivors there are uh, as to whether fiction of any sort should try to address the Holocaust. And the argument basically made by Ellie Wiesel, among others, is the testimony, which is a version of what you're talking about, uh, personal accounts, 
is the only valid way of dealing with this. You can't shape it. But on the, and so I read lots and lots of accounts, including some by people that I knew personally, and they were heartbreaking, heartrending stories. But to be honest, many of them were not well told. Um, hmm. And and that uh-huh. became a problem. You read something like Ellie Wiesel's Night, and it's incredibly powerful. Somebody else, and there's a guy I, who's not no longer alive, uh, but it's somebody I got to know well who'd written a book in which his story was at least as compelling, but it needed a better writer, to be honest. And it's, it's difficult to say that, but authors can do things that eyewitnesses sometimes can't. Yeah, and um, I wonder about that. The I've, I've, I've fallen in love with the novels of Elena Ferrante, and mm-hmm. she uh, made a huge distinction between verisimilitude and authenticity, so that um, it was important to be authentic, she said, but it turns out that she did not grow up in Naples. And her the, the, the writer, Elena Ferrante, is a fiction made up by some woman in Rome who doesn't have that mm-hmm. name, who doesn't have that life story, that, that author biography is also made up. It made me laugh. And I began to realize that her insistence on authenticity was part of the game she was playing. Yeah. And all you need is verisimilitude. And the authenticity happens in readers' minds, not in writers' experiences, but in readers' minds. So you need verisimilitude, and that takes writers' craft and skill. Right. So I agree with you. Some eyewitnesses can't quite convey it somehow. Uh, And yet a good writer, by being verisimilitudinous, can create the authenticity in the reader's head. And this, to me, was a great discovery. And maybe it was part of what made the ministry possible, was uh, reading Ferrante and realizing she's not a Neapolitan woman who grew up in the projects. Um, She's a a Roman woman who Mm -hmm. who, uh, is a translator from the German, presumably, if we know who she really is. And I love her dearly for both her novels and for her... Um, somewhat deceptive claims about what literature is all about, because for me, it clarified things. And I think that uh, by uh, taking on voices and pretending to be the other, if you do it well enough, then you've made a gesture of respect towards the people who really went through that stuff. Well, so I think that, that's the project. Yeah, we, we, we all know people in, uh, who, who are involved in what is now a debate about appropriation and writing the other and that sort of thing. Nisi Shaw does what I gather is a very effective course on it. And what I hear from all of the people who, who teach those courses is simply do your homework. Yeah. That sounds simple, but that seems to be the whole, it, it's not that hard to get it right. There are people who will read it for you. Uh, there are people who will check out, uh, uh, you know, cultural assumptions. Like you mentioned, you had Indian readers looking at your first chapter. Uh, it's not that yeah. hard to get it right, I don't think. That might be true, because we're, we're all fundamentally the same in the end. Um, verisimilitude is a is a craft thing, and and help help is huge in writing for things that you haven't done yourself that you want to write about anyway. I remember I wrote a short story called Down and Out in the Year 2000, which was about the people I was seeing in the parks in Washington, D.C., Northwest, uh, on the hot mm-hmm. evenings. They were all African-Americans. They were all out there on the picnic tables because it was too hot to be in the apartments, which were mostly unair conditioned And I thought, well, let's write that story. And I was terrified. I thought, well, I don't know anything. I'm just seeing them and listening mm-hmm. to them out on the streets. And it was Chip Delaney who said, 
to me when I described it to him on a visit to New York. And he says, oh, Stan, well, it's good you're trying. It's just trying that matters. <laughs> yeah. And it, the beauty of Delaney as a teacher for me and the tolerance of that statement and that it's the trying that matters. I've never forgotten it. It was something that uh, something similar. I remember Joe Walton was saying about Roger Zelazny. She was... Uh because he's, he's in one of these Library of America things. And he had done a lot of things trying to appropriate, well, what we would now call appropriating Hindu mythology. And the point she was making is, today his novel, Lord of Light, looks like appropriation. In 1967, he gets credit for even being aware that the rest of the world was there. Yeah, yeah. I actually quite love Lord of Light, although I admit I haven't read it in I these read it last 50 years. It's the full 50 years that I haven't read it, but, you know, he was awfully talented, and I bet you it's pretty fun, and I wonder if there's anything offensive in it. I kind of, um, I, w I wouldn't be surprised if there's not anything, if there's nothing to object in it, I wouldn't be surprised. Mm. Uh, what, would, what, what could he have done? To, the Hindu mythology is a gigantic mess, uh, multicultural and, and mm. um, something multi-authorial. Uh, uh, it's something that I quite love about that literature and all literature. There's uh, Bakhtin who talks about uh, polyvocal, that the novel is heterogeneous and polyvocal, that it's not memoir, thank God. Mm -hmm. And it's not a single voice telling you things. And that the novels that convince you that that's the case are exceptions to the rule that most novels and of course these ancient epics that are oral poems that have been reinvented every night for 10,000 years yeah. um, the, these are these are something that anybody can jump into and play the game so it, it would be fun actually to reread uh, Lord of Wright and see what he was up to there because I remember at the time being kind of blown away mm-hmm well, just the language itself was what I think blew most of us away back then. Um, and I, at, at the time, I'm going to say that I probably learned as much as I knew about Hindu mythology from reading novels like that. And only later would I realize uh, how, how, how misappropriated things might be. I don't know. I've, I've not reread it in a long time either. It was one that when we were considering the Library of America, I just eliminated because it was too long for one thing. And it was unclear whether it was entirely science fiction, but uh, well, but I, you you picked a great Zelazny there with um, uh, this immortal or whatever, um, and call me Conrad. Is that the yeah? That was, yeah by the yeah, way, yeah. we used the title and call me Conrad because Chip Delaney said that's the title that Roger wanted. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's um, that's a weak read, um, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, I think of Delaney and Zelazny as, especially in Delaney's mind, as uh, competitors for the title of hottest new writer of 1965. And there's a, a Delaney story called um, We on Some, in Some Strangers Employ, uh, Follow a Rigorous Line. Yeah. Yeah, that's a. It's a line from a Matthew Arnold poem called "The Gypsy Scholar," which, right. when I identified it to Chip, he was quite amazed. Um, in any case, that story has a Chip character and a Zelazny character, and they're fighting on on uh, skyrockets that resemble <laughs> a, a giant phallus, and um, and they're zooming around, uh, shooting each other, and trying to bring each other down, and and the Chip character wins. <laughs> so uh, in terms of wish fulfillment short stories, it's quite explicit, I think, and very funny. 
so, so, but on the other hand, I, I had a breakfast with them once at a uh, Eaton conference, uh, the two of them, and they were clearly oh, really? very fond of each other. Yeah, yeah they, they were obviously writing back and forth because when we were trying to establish yeah. the text of the Zelazny novel, Chip not only remembered what he wanted in his novel, in Novo, which was included, but he remembered what Roger wanted, he, he, all kinds of bibliographical stuff, which he remembered. Chip has a kind of an amazing memory when it comes to this sort of thing. Yes, he does. Yes. And I, I, um, I mean, I like Nova, but for me, the, the one that absolutely knocked me out of the park uh, from that era was the Einstein intersection, mm -hmm. uh, which, which is so weird that I don't know if you can call it science fiction, but it's in that zone, obviously. Um, it's in the future. It's science yeah. fiction. It's just um, mythological and bizarre. But that one was the one that I think uh, convinced me that um, that Delaney was one of the major talents of our time, which I think is true. And that and it 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 was inspirational for a young person trying to be a writer to think you can be as weird as you want if you if you've got that um, conviction if you can. If you can, um, how can I say it? If you can make the story compelling enough by way of language and by way of what happens, then the the fact that it it might not parse if you tried to exactly. make it make sense that doesn't matter. It's it's, it's almost like a dream, and uh, and right. dr uh, dreams sometimes work as literature. And language is what makes it work because there's this coruscating language in both. Uh, Zelaznian dish, and, and, and to some extent, I think it gave them permission. It gave, to some extent, all science fiction writers permission to not entirely make sense. Yeah, especially in the new wave. You get yeah. out from under John W. Campbell, you've got the 60s, you've got sex, drugs, rock and roll, and, and amongst the drugs, you got LSD. Um, it's time to uh, blow your consciousness up, and <laughs> making sense is like low on the list of priorities. And I still think the new wave, say 1965 to 1975, is the treasure trove of the greatest masterpiece. Uh, my wife and I listened to um, Left Handed Darkness Driving Across the Country, and I, oh. I recently reread and wrote a small introduction to for the dispossessed and it goes and then you mentioned uh, dish there um, by accident but it's a good accident because dish needs to be remembered and included especially in those years the when you think about it even writers that you don't think of as uh, new like Poole Anderson or Jack Vance or Harlan Nelson or Silverberg mm -hmm. in the from 65 to 75 they were all on fire yeah and uh it, and and Norman Spinrad and it goes on and on and on. Um, it's 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 rather astonishing. And in literary terms, I don't think we've ever matched that. Uh, in terms of Library of America, you have to make choices. You have to fit those two beautiful volumes in those box sets. I quite love them. But if you were doing you know classics of the new wave, you could go on and and have a hundred volume. Oh yeah. Although one of the things I have to, I think I've said this before, but. Like any anthologist, and Jonathan knows this far better than I do, there were things that were not in there because of permissions. Believe it or not, there are people who will not give permission oh, to the yeah. library of America. But, uh, that is hard to believe. Oh, what painful. I want to say, though, is about this. Is there a risk, when listening to you talk about the new wave and the period from, say, 65 to 75 being this treasure trove period, that this is a matter of perspective? Because... You hear a lot of younger people saying they, you know, they don't want to be asked to read older work in the science fiction field. I can't help but cast back to a conversation that Gary and I had 
some years ago now with Barry Malsberg, who would tell you that the greatest mm-hmm. period in the history of science fiction was the 1950s. So it, uh-huh. is it a matter of the viewer seeing the the um, the situation a particular way, or is it that's intrinsically? Well, that's a good question. And it, I think it um, giving all credit to the idea that the golden age of science fiction is 12, and in my case, 18, because I was uh, I didn't discover science fiction until I was 18. Mm. And the newness of it, the surprise and newness can never be recovered uh, later on. That's always important. But I swear to God, I could create a reading list of, um, let's call it 20 novels from 65 to 75 that would... Um, boggle the minds of current young readers used to what they are, weak tea, often total crap, um, and, uh, and, and even seem quite contemporary in almost every way. Um, and, and if somebody said, well, I can do the same thing for the period of um, 2005 to 2015, I flatly disbelieve it. And now partly, partly that's my own ignorance, okay? I haven't um, there's too much. I haven't been able to keep up. I deliberately stay ignorant of many of my peers because I don't want to be um, overawed by them or 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 learn that things that I wanted to do have already been done. And so I I stay ignorant on purpose, so to speak. Uh, so it isn't like it was when I wanted to read everything, like I did in 1971. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, my spot checks, my my dips in, like what's what's hot right now. I'll check it out. I'll go. You got to be kidding me! And <laughs> I I think there's some there's something about so-called YA literature that is absolutely debilitating. And you've got to be kidding me. There's there's no such thing. Children are already adults. The, it's a publishing category. People who write for it are making a category error and um, their novels are weak. So when I think about, oh, I don't know, Camp Concentration or the Dragon Masters or the Lathe of Heaven or, you know, on and on it goes from 65 to 75, um, the female man or, um, mm. and chaos died. And then I think about, well, what would you give me out of the last five to 10 years that is supposedly the best that science fiction and fantasy has to offer? I, this, I mean, I, I, I realize this is probably sounding extremely, uh, old fogey and uh, provincial of me in an ageist way, but I, and of course you have to appeal to God. There's, there's, in other words, there's no, uh, objective, uh, literary judge that could look at the two objectively and say, oh, this is better than that. So and it's an impossible contest. But um, if maybe this may reflect my academic background, if you're in an English class. <laughs> uh, I, okay, so I'm at UC San Diego. I'm in the literature department. And at that point, I was a devotee of murder mysteries, locked room mysteries, John Dixon Carr, Ellery Queen, Agatha Christie, um, that whole crowd. And I love them dearly. And then suddenly I'm in an English class and suddenly they're teaching me uh, Virginia Woolf and D.H. Lawrence and E.M. Um, e. Forrester and Ford Maddox Ford. And well, mm-hmm. uh, my jaw was on my chest. I thought, isn't this the most boring stuff in the world? But also, I was young then. I, I reread most of them in my 50s. And I thought, oh, my God, it's not so much boring as it is over the head of a 20-year-old. <laughs> so 
Um, it's situational. It's when your age, it's what you're used to. It's what you're, um, it's what you're given as being good. And then you have to adjust to that. And, uh, the, the idea of the canon, the idea of English literature and American literature, that there were permanently excellent works in the canon that deserve to be reread that are in many ways, way better than just your ordinary book of the current year, which is, you know, that's not surprising. These, the only 1% of the past gets remembered, and it's usually the stuff that's best. So you compare the 1% of the best of the last two centuries to the the current crop from the last five years, the past is going to win. And maybe that's all I'm saying. But there was a glorious moment, the new wave. There's no doubt about it. There was, but I, uh, and I'm going to, and I'm, I think I'm, I think I'm older than you are, Stan. I don't know. I'm 74. Um, yeah, I'm 68, I think. Oh, I'm way ahead of you then. Okay, yeah. so you have to listen yeah. to me, young whippersnapper. Uh, yeah. No, there there are writers that I've discovered in the last 10 years that are I have as much of a sense of discovery as I did uh, 40 or 50 years ago. Given that, uh, it's hard to figure out who they are, and you kind of have to discover them on your own. Uh, and mm-hmm. I can send you a list of names later. Given that, there are also, I find, among younger readers, uh, writers who get rediscovered every generation and every generation thinks they're the only ones who have discovered that writer. My favorite example is Cordwainer Smith. People in their twenties <laughs> yeah. and thirties reading Cordwainer Smith and they, they keep saying nobody ever appreciated Cordwainer Smith before me, except their parents thought that nobody ever appreciated Cordwainer Smith before them. Yeah. And they're they're all correct. They're 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 all true. I think there are writers today who have that kind of uh, effect. But the problem is there's so much more uh, variety and diversity in the field that uh, it, it, it is harder to find them. When you talk about the new wave, you're talking about writers. When you mentioned Silverberg and Ellison and Dish and, and even Le Guin and Russ, they were coming out of a period, correctly or not, which was perceived as a repressive period where you had to please the editors of one of three science fiction magazines and maybe three or four uh, uh, publish, uh, book publishers. Um, so there was a sense of liberation where suddenly Silverberg was writing the best stuff of his career within six months. I think what we're seeing now, and I'm, I'm saying this partly because I'm looking at Jonathan's uh, current year's best, which is full of stories uh, from India and Lebanon and in uh, uh, China and so forth. All those writers are experiencing now what American writers were experiencing in the 70s. There's suddenly... Uh, a release of tension. There's suddenly a sense of liberation that they can write a kind of science fiction now that maybe they, maybe their ancestors couldn't. So, so to some extent, the new wave is a rolling wave that's going around the world even now. Oh, I love that. And I have to say that you, by reading all that you have read, know way more about what's going on now than I do, because I've been deliberately uh, ignorant and very, very selective and accidental. Whereas oh, you've been comp- you've been comprehensive as part of your work, and Jonathan's been comprehensive as part of his work. So um, you guys know what's going on now in a way that I absolutely don't know. And uh, and I I shouldn't. It, it's a mistake to disparage the president. <laughs> I, I can I can I can um, I can keep my 
loyalty to the greatness of the new wave period and the and and that's just the best works of that period oh, after yeah. all. And then as for the present, uh, what I really need is more reading lists. And when you talk about the internationalization, I've been looking into a little bit of that. And I, coming out of Frederick Jameson, I think that all these um, national literatures are always allegories for their nations in the mm. larger world. So you read Lebanese science fiction, it's about Lebanon in, in the world, no matter what else it's about. It's also about that on an allegorical level. And uh, I've felt for years that until a country has a science fiction, it doesn't have a good sense of its future. But in this world, uh, hurtling forward as it is, you see these national uh, science fictions develop all over. And I'm mm -hmm. looking at Arabian science fiction, for instance, and uh, Indian science fiction for sure because of a couple of acquaintances. And that's the first time that these nations have a literary sense of their futures. And so this is crucial. And like um, the novel by or Orhan Pamuk, the Nobel Prize winner called Snow, which is about Turkey, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a young Islamic science fiction writer who's only 19 who is a kind of a pathetic character. And I think Pamuk is saying there, until Turkey has its own science fiction, then it doesn't have a good sense of its future. It isn't uh, well-placed in the world of the present. So uh, I'm, as a science fiction patriot, I think that it's it's crucial to have and to pay attention to these international things, which mostly we're reading through translations. So we're um, we're heavily dependent on the people that translate this stuff. Their editors, in effect, what they choose to translate oh, into English then becomes what English readers understand of these foreign literatures. And so it's crucial stuff that they that they choose innovative things. And we're seeing this in Chinese science fiction, not just with uh, Liu Shishin, but all of the people that Ken Liu has been introducing to us by way of his translations and his introductions. And so, and China, of course, they have a sense of their fear. And I was yeah. there in Beijing right after I went to Antarctica and did an event with um, uh, Liu Shishin. And, and it is astonishing to how uh, interested the Chinese were in science fiction as a way to express their own historical situation. So, it's it's fabulous the way science fiction works in this world, and I uh, by no means do I want to be so retro as to say you know actually in Barry Malzberg style <laughs> to say that you know it all died and it all died in 1963 when Kennedy got shot or whatever. Not so. It's just that in literary terms, there is a high point there. That's all I really should say. There, well, there, 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 there is a high point, and I, I, I think there was. I, I think there was a high point when E.M. Forster and D.H. Lawrence were writing. Uh, my simple po point is that 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 paying attention to current literature does not mean ignoring the past, and paying attention to the past does not necessarily mean ignoring uh, current literature. Right, it's true. Oh. And as an English major, I love it all. I must say, as a working method, I have deliberately remained ignorant of my contemporaries and of current science fiction, so that uh, partly so I don't scare myself. Like, how weird am I? Well, I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> because I haven't read anything else. And so it allows me to get as weird as I need to be without freaking myself out. So, I mean, I can write a book like The Ministry for the Future because is it like other science fiction today? I have no idea. Uh, because I've been leaving a blank spot there in my life as a reader. And, you know, I'm very busy as a reader. I, I'm reading right. Defoe, I'm reading through the canon, I'm reading foreign literatures. I don't have to read the most popular science fiction and fantasy writers of the last five years. And if I don't read them, then I don't freak myself out. My my, my sense in talking to a lot of writers and, and readers in the last uh, over the summer is that only very young and fairly naive fans believe that science fiction readers obsessively read each other to check out the competition. Um, my sense is that most writers read nonfiction. They read old mysteries that they used to like. They read, I don't know, Andy Duncan was reading Lenny Bruce's autobiography for whatever reason. Uh, people read what they read. It's, 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 mm -hmm. it's not a competitive foot race. It's true. Although I will say that when I was... I don't know, say 25 to 30, I was very interested in reading what everybody else was doing right then. So there's see. a there's a kind of a young person's game. You got to know what the cutting edge is doing to try to match it. And yeah. there's a uh, there was a little bit of competitive go competitiveness going on in the 80s that I I didn't like, but I got drug into. And so I can imagine young writers reading what other young writers are doing to see what's the game now. But once you get, once you get past that, and especially when you get to the stage that I'm at, it's like I have the um, impression that I might be doing um, fairly eccentric work, but I'm not sure. <laughs> and that's that's comforting. There's the impression, I guess. There's, there's, there's this feeling that in science fiction... Uh, science fiction texts are in dialogue with one another. There's this evolutionary idea that one text begets the other, which would require writers to be reading one another in the way that you're suggesting from experience isn't necessarily the case. Do you feel that dialogue thing, if it's if it's real, uh, is a young man or young writer's game, that it's that finding your, your feet and your voice at the beginning of a career rather than what you do as you evolve later on? Yeah, I think there's something to that. Um, and there is a dialogue going on in science fiction. Uh, uh, Budras was very good on this, that it's, um, there was a dialectical game playing, okay, you say X, and therefore I'm going to say Y. Um, there's a great story about, uh, by Damon Knight, I think, called Masks, where um, he, uh, someone becomes a cyborg and is... Um, uh, disgusted by humans. I might even be getting this backwards. Michael Bishop then writes a great short story in which uh, someone becoming a cyborg falls in love with humans, mm -hmm. and you see this. You see this back and forth, especially in the fifties, where the in the magazines everybody was clearly reading everything and bouncing ideas around like ping pong balls, and it was good. It, it, that's why time travel stories were almost completely exhausted by the time the fifties were over. Yeah. Um, and, and I like that about science fiction, the, the genre as a community of playing a kind of a game together. Uh, and I, and I, I don't know, I mean, sometimes when I share these ideas about science fiction as a community, as a discourse space, someone like George Martin will say, well, it used to be that way, but now it's all blown apart by too muchness. There's too much of everything nobody understands anymore. The, the community's blown up. Well, 
I've always been on the kind of edge of the community. I love it. Mm. I feel that I am a member of the community, but um, I'm sort of on the border of it. And I come, I come uh, dropping into a convention or, uh, or a discussion, and then I fly out again into my outer world. And uh, and George knows it way better than I do. When he says that, I find it disturbing because I can't judge its truth value because he's as old as I am. And it's, again, maybe an old person saying it's not like it used to be. And I don't know. I, I, I simply don't know. But the discussion, how else could you learn to write science fiction without reading a ton of it? Otherwise, you wouldn't know the rules and you'd be like these poor ham-fisted outsiders who come in and reinvent the wheel. Right. Uh, and sometimes they're good and, some, and often they're quite bad. So I think it makes sense for a young writer interested in the genre to read it extensively and and obsessively and know it and then play off it. but then as you get older it's like you said jonathan you drift off into a space where i think i know what i want to do and i don't mm. want to be intimidated by the the so-called rules the the what i called the asimov uh style sheet which was really uh. gardner gardner dozwa a beautiful person and a great editor but he had a sense of 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 what short stories were made of, where if you if you got outside those boundaries, um, it wouldn't go. So I called it the Asimov style sheet, and it has to do with really simple things like how many adjectives you have before a noun be, before you begin uh -huh. to look uh, French or insane. <laughs> um, uh, and and I I wanted to get away from that. From the time I read Mars on, I wanted to get away from all that and be. Um, eccentric and follow my own star and my own sense that comes out of a older part of the canon. Like it's, it's nice to sound like you're out of the 18th century or that you're some kind of pre-modernist. Mm -hmm. So, so I've had my own program and I think that every writer that is, um, has a long enough career probably goes through that same kind of career arc of being intensely engaged and then taking off into your own orbit. Yeah. Well, look, it seems to me that we've kept you far longer than we said you were, we were going to. So we uh -huh. probably should begin to wind up. But okay. uh, <laughs> I do want to thank you for making the time talk. to talk to us today and for the Ministry for the Future. Well, thank you. Um, I love you guys. It's been it's um, it's so fun to be part of this community and uh, I'll stay part. Uh, this book is some kind of a transitional thing. It's a monster. It's a it's a. Uh, it was an awesome experience for me in 2019, and I feel like it's kind of going out in style, but not to not to any kind of silence, just kind of to some next phase that will be right. different somehow. So it's a culmination, and uh, God knows what it'll read like in the age of the pandemic. But well, yeah. we'll look forward to whatever comes next. Yes. Yes. And, and, well, and, I'll be and, listening. And, 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 and we'll have you back because uh, we could go on all night talking about the issues that we mm. just raised here. But yeah. Um, okay. Well, no, Ed, I, 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 I realize I'm looking at the clock for the first time. I realize you probably have to edit down or whatever. But, but uh, bless you. And uh, yeah, let's do it again. Okay. And, yeah.